We're going to look at a couple of Bible verses tonight. Um, not a whole lot of Bible drill for you this evening. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Bible, and we've spent the last uh, several weeks talking about what it is we believe about the scriptures. What do we believe about the doctrine of the Bible? And some of the things that we've talked about leading up to where we're at in the study right now is the inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the perspicuity or the clarity of the Bible, uh, its authority, its necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, and beauty. And last week was a pivot. We're no longer talking about the doctrine of the Bible. Now we're thinking about how we actually make sense of the Bible. And so last week we talked about the canon. Why do we have these 66 books, no more, no less? Why are these the books that we're trying to interpret and make sense of? And tonight we're going to begin actually talking about hermeneutics. And so just a little bit of a disclaimer, starting tonight and moving forward, it's really less of a Bible study and more a lesson about how you study the Bible. And so I hope the things that we talk about are helpful, not just for you as you think about Sunday school and Sunday morning listening to a sermon, but when you think about reading your Bible on your own. So we're talking about hermeneutics. How do we make sense of the Bible? Tonight is a bit of an introduction. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you, don't jump the gun here, how many of you have traveled out of the country, and I'm not talking like to Cozumel or Cancun, where everyone speaks English. I'm talking about how many of you have traveled out of the country to a place where at least you felt like genuinely you were the only English speaker? Have you been in a situation like that where you just almost feel lost and frustrated? Let me tell you one example of this in my life. About 10 years ago, I went on a mission trip to northern China with some folks from our church in Oklahoma. And we were exploring a possible partnership between our church and some IMB personnel in northern China. Literally across the river, you could see North Korea. There was a bridge going right across the river to North Korea, so you were that close. And the first day we were there with the missionary put us in a taxi, he gave us a handful of Chinese money, he told the taxi driver, take these guys to the statue of Mao, it was in the middle of town, and he took us to this statue. Now, in their minds, this is a small town, only about three million people, okay, small town, it didn't even qualify as a city in their minds. So he puts us in the taxi, takes us across town, drops us at the Mao statue. We've got a little bit of Chinese money. He has scribbled out some English phonetic sounds that are actually Chinese words. And the goal was, on your own, get back to my apartment. And we just got out at the statue of Mao and we thought, well, here we are. Now we gotta figure out how to get back. And there's just not a lot of English speakers that we ran into. And you may not have been in a situation exactly like that, but perhaps you've been in a situation where there was just a communication barrier. There was a language barrier, and you just weren't able to talk to people. You needed to, you wanted to, and that ability just wasn't there. If you've been in that situation, you know how helpless you feel. You just feel completely helpless, and you know how quickly you get frustrated 
you just real fast, you talk louder and louder. You start saying very basic English words as loud as you can. Like that's going to, like they're deaf. You're like you're talking to deaf people and they can't hear you. So you turn the volume up and your blood pressure rises and you get red in the face and you start tensing up all your muscles. And it's really, really frustrating. I mentioned those sorts of scenarios to say there are challenges when you travel overseas and you're thinking about communicating with other people who are not native English speakers. We need to recognize there are similar challenges when we, as white English-speaking Americans, approach the Bible and try to make sense of this book. And it's not just a language barrier. And I want to mention four challenges. What challenges do we face when we're reading and interpreting the Bible? I just want to make sure we all understand sort of what we're up against. The first challenge would be the distance of time. We read in our Bible a, quote, New Testament that is 2,000 years old. And the Old Testament is about 2,400 Go back, depending on your chronology, however old you think that might be, 4,000, 5,000 years old. This is an old, old book. If my wife writes a grocery list for me and sends me to Market Street, and I get on aisle four, and I think, oh, man, I'm stuck, I can just call her and say, hey, I'm stuck on aisle four. I don't know what this means. Where is it? I don't see it. Where is the quinoa? I don't know where, well, you're not supposed to be on aisle 4 You're supposed to be on aisle 12 That's where the quinoa is, whatever it is I'm looking for. There's no time distance. You and I don't have that luxury with King David. Wish we did. King David, I'm reading Psalm 51, and I have a question. Isaiah, I'm reading one of your prophecies, and I'm not, we don't get to do that. Peter, Paul, John, New Testament, Old Testament. There's a time distance here. We don't have the luxury of talking to these guys and asking for clarification. Secondly, there's a culture distance. A culture distance. I was listening to a podcast today by a couple of British guys, and they were talking about Americanization. They were just talking about how Americans think the world revolves around America. And then they were sort of poking fun at us for that, but then they sort of admitted, well, it kind of does revolve around America, so they're not completely unjustified in their ego. But as Americans, we tend to think the world revolves around us. When you come to this book, there's not a single page of this book that was written by an American, a modern Western person. It's all written all written by pre-modern people, not post-modern people, not modern people, pre-modern people, people who lived not on our continent, people whose worldview was not exactly like the typical worldview in the year 2021. There's a vast cultural distance between us and what we assume about life in the world and the biblical authors and what they assume about the world. Third, there's a distance of geography. I think that's obvious. If I visit with you after the service tonight and I tell you that uh, a couple of weeks ago my son rode sheep in West Odessa, it's a piece of geography. 
As soon as I say West Odessa, most of you get a, a mental picture of something. I don't know what it is, but you get a mental picture of something. You think, oh, okay, I have a category for West Odessa. Or if I say to you, you know, my daughter played basketball and volleyball this year. One of the teams we played, I did not like playing them, was Crane. Oh, I don't like those people in Crane. They're the worst. You start to think, oh, I know the road that goes to Crane, or I've been to Crane, or I've been in their gym. There's a mental picture. But if we open the Bible and I say to you, now some of you have traveled to the Holy Lands, but most of you haven't. I haven't. If I say, this story takes place near Beersheba, what do you got in your mental database for Beersheba? It's not beer, Beersheba. What if I say it's close to AI? You're like, oh, I've heard of that. What book is that one in? I know. But like visually, you don't see anything. You don't know what it smells like in AI. You've been to West Odessa. AI, you hadn't been there. So there's a distance of geography when we're trying to understand these things. Lastly, I mentioned this earlier, there's a distance of language. The Bible was not written in English. It's written in Hebrew and Greek. We're going to talk about that as we wrap up tonight. I just want to say this on the front end. Translation from one language to another is always really, really tricky. Is not a simple thing. And when you meet people who can translate on the fly, like interpreters, and they can listen to a speaker and just translate, like that is a magical thing taking place in that moment. It is really, really amazing the way the human brain is working on the fly that quickly. But it's an entirely different challenge to translate written texts. And that's really what we're talking about tonight. So there's all these distances. R.C. Sproul says this as we think about hermeneutics. The science of hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. We are trying to interpret the Bible. And I've given you four verses here. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how the last three got on there. The only one that I want you to pay attention to is Luke 24. In Luke 24, verse 27, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he appears to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke 24, 27 says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that word that we're looking at there is interpreted. He interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. In the Greek word, I believe I put this in your notes, is hermenuain. It means to explain or to interpret. It's the same Greek root that makes up the name of, you've probably heard of the Greek god Hermes. We think of Hermes, you see this little statue, and it's kind of dark, but he's got the wings on his hat, and if you look close, he's got the wings on his feet, and he's running, and he's delivering these messages, and we think he's the messenger for the gods. You could also say he's the spokesman for the gods, or if you wanted to be true to the root that makes up his name, he's the interpreter for the gods. He takes a message from the gods in Greek mythology and he delivers it to human beings in a way that they can understand it. That's sort of the root idea of interpretation or explanation as we're making sense of it tonight. What's the goal? What are we actually trying to do when we interpret the Bible? Three simple things. Number one, we want to understand God's Word. We spent all those weeks talking about the Bible. It's inspired. 
It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's necessary. It's sufficient. It's powerful. It's beautiful. All these things we said about the Bible. If all of those things are true, then you and I ought to desire to understand what God has said to us. We want to be able to make sense of it. We want to be able to interpret it. Secondly, we want to avoid misunderstanding. We don't want to get off on tangents. We don't want to get off on something that we think we've got figured out, but we haven't really got figured out because the consequences for that are pretty significant when it comes to misunderstanding God's Word. Thirdly, we want to know how to apply it to our lives. First, you've got to understand it, and then you've got to think through the process of how it applies to our lives. And Americans are pragmatists. We don't really have the patience for interpretation and understanding. We like to jump right to the application. We just want to know, tell me what this means. Tell me what to do. Tell me what I'm not supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to start doing. Like, just get to it and tell me what this actually means to my life. But before you get there, you've got to understand it, and you've got to be sure that you're not misunderstanding it, and that's hermeneutics. So tonight, one of the things I want to talk to you about is communication and hermeneutics. Just thinking about communication and written communication in general, okay? I'm going to make an obvious point that is actually really important, so stay with me on this. All written communication involves three things. There's the author, there's the text, and there's the reader. The author, written communication, writing something, then there's a text. Presumably it's written for a purpose, to a person. There's the person who receives it and reads it. All those things are involved in written communication, okay? The question when it comes to hermeneutics is, on those three, author, text, reader, who or what gets to determine meaning? There's three choices. Who or what gets to determine the meaning? A lot of the time in American culture, the text ends up determining meaning. The text ends up determining meaning. And you see this with music all of the time. I'll give you a classic example of this. Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. People hear that song, it comes on the radio, and it's an upbeat, peppy song, and I'm born in the USA, and you feel like Lee Greenwood's right beside you, and you feel patriotic, and you think, I need to say the Pledge of Allegiance and salute the flag or something. Like, it just creates these feelings of patriotism, and when the song came out, politicians were using it at rallies to sort of pump up the crowds and be excited about America. But if you actually listen to the rest of the words besides born in the USA, it's really not a patriotic song. It's really a song that's saying, yeah, this is kind of a lousy place. But then the chorus is upbeat and positive, and the text sort of in that hook, that chorus, that catchy line, it just sort of takes over and the text creates a meaning, patriotism, that is not really at all or was not really at all intended by the author. Okay, that kind of thing happens all the time. Another option, this is very common in an American culture, is that the reader determines the meaning. The reader determines the meaning. 
It's independent of what the author intended, and it's independent of almost what the text says. There's a lot of people that say, you know, in communication theory, it's really just up to the reader, and the reader gets to decide what a text means. Here's where you see this in a crucial arena in our lives is with the Constitution of the United States. And there's a debate. Is this document, this document that governs really every aspect of life in America in some way, shape, or form, is it a living document or a dead document? A lot of people who say it's a living document end up saying, you know, those guys that wrote it lived a long time ago. They didn't didn't really know anything about life in 2021. And they did their best. They put some good stuff down. But today, it's up to us to go back and to look at this document and to find what might be in there that we've missed over the years. To sort of reinterpret it and reimagine it and sort of mold it into what we wish that it said. That's the idea that the reader gets to determine the meaning. There's obviously another side of the country or of the judiciary that says, no, actually the intent of the author in writing the legislation, the constitution or the bill or the whatever, is really what matters. And then you've got a group in the middle that says, well, really it's not a matter of the, the reader or the author, it's just a matter of what the text actually says. You've got all of these options when it comes to the constitution, but it's certainly a popular option to say that the reader gets to determine the meaning of the text. Some rightly say that it's the author's intent that matters the most when you're determining the meaning of a text and when you're trying to interpret the Bible. The phrase would be the authorial intent of the passage. That's sort of the question we're trying to drive at when we read and study the Bible. What did they mean when they wrote it? Not what do we think it means, but what was their original intent when they wrote these documents. I'll be honest with you, giving precedence to authorial intent is really the only way that meaningful communication is possible in life at all. Okay? My wife makes me a list. I go to the grocery store. I come back with 50 things not on the list and nothing on the list. And she says, didn't you read the list? And I say, yeah, but I kind of just reimagined it as I went along. That's a breakdown in communication, and it's about to be a breakdown of something else, okay? It doesn't work that way. I went to the bank today. I took my paycheck. I I put it in. They send me a slip back that said, this is how much money we put in. I don't get to reimagine those numbers, right? They gave me a written text, a receipt. This is what you put in. This is your balance. I don't get to say, well, I'd like to reimagine this and What if I move this decimal over here? You don't get to do that. It's the only way that meaningful communication is possible. Uh, In a book, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard say this. We assume that people communicate in order to be understood, and this includes the authors of the Scripture. It's the only way that communication is possible. Another quote, I didn't have space to put this on your notes. I'll throw it up on the screen. This is Robert Stein basic guide to interpreting the Bible. He says, what a biblical author willed by his text is anchored in history. It was composed in the past, and being a part of the past, what the author willed to communicate back then can never change. What a text meant when it was written 
it will always mean. It can no more change than any other event of the past can change. I know people today think we can reinvent and redescribe the past. You can't do that. It can no more change than any other event of the past can change because its meaning is forever anchored in past history. Yet, what an author such as Paul consciously willed to say in the past also has implications of which he was not necessarily aware. And I want to give you an example of what he's talking about. Okay, Take your Bible. Look at the book of Ephesians, look at chapter 5, and look at verse 18. It's just a very simple lesson on thinking about authorial intent while also thinking about implications that in this instance Paul maybe didn't have in mind when he wrote Ephesians 5.18. So Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Pretty simple verse, right? Just take that first phrase. Do not get drunk with wine. You're trying to interpret the Bible. All you're trying to do when you look at that verse is say, what did Paul mean when he said that? Now, I've picked an easy one for the sake of illustration, right? You look at it and you say, well... It's an imperative. It's a command. So he's not making a suggestion here. He's not making a request. He's giving a command. Do not do this. So it's a prohibition. It's not do this, but it's don't do this. Do not get drunk. I think we all understand what drunk is. And the reference that Paul has in mind specifically is with wine. Do not get drunk with wine. Robert Stein, we just read him, says, the meaning of that text is anchored in history. It will never, ever, 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 ever change. What Paul meant 2,000 years ago when he wrote it is what the text means today. You may not like what it means. You may wish that it wasn't in the Bible. But that's what it means. And you have to deal with it. Especially if you believe that this is inspired scripture, you got to come to grips with it. Do not get drunk with wine. That's what it means. What about whiskey? Paul didn't say anything about whiskey. Not a thing. He just said wine. So, I guess whiskey's on the table. Bourbon, scotch, your drink of choice. No wine. Hard liquor's okay. No. You understand what the text means. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The implications that Paul didn't necessarily foresee, but that would fall under that passage include whiskey, scotch, bourbon, peyote, medical marijuana, or excuse me, recreational marijuana. That was a slip. Recreational marijuana. You understand, right? There's a lot of things that we could put under that umbrella where we would say, okay, all of these substances are causing you to be drunk, intoxicated, high, an altered state of consciousness, and that would fall under the original meaning of what Paul's talking about. But the original meaning is not going to change. What it meant 2,000 years ago, it's always going to mean. And your job and my job as Bible interpreters is always, first and foremost, to say, what did it mean? It's the same thing as saying, what does it mean? Those are the same questions. What did it mean? What does it mean? 
Always the same answer to those questions. One of the things I want you to be aware of is this. In our search for authorial intent, you need to remember that the Bible was not written to us even if it was written for us. Was not written to us. This is as obvious as 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Paul says that this letter is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's who he wrote it to. He didn't write it to Odessa, Texas. He wrote it to the church of God that's in Corinth. Now he does also say here, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their, their Lord and ours. So he does envision a broader audience, but he specifically wrote this letter to Corinth. But I also want you to see what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He's warning them about idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, he's referring to the Old Testament. He says, these things took place as examples for us. And he's talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt and their idolatry and their stubbornness and their rebellion. And he's saying, look, Moses didn't write those stories to us, but they were written down for us. And as a Bible interpreter, you just have to remember that. These books weren't written to you. Were they written for you? Yeah, they were. But they weren't addressed to you. And that means you've got to understand something not only about the author, but about the original audience, about the people that were reading them in the first place. Stein says this, if we understand how the author's intended audience would have understood the text, we as readers today can also understand the meaning of that same text. Next, if we're seeking authorial intent, the often used question, what does this passage mean to you, is entirely irrelevant. And you hear that in Bible studies all the time. Read a verse, let's go around the circle. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Well, what does it mean to you? You get 18 different answers, and there's this awkward moment of none of our answers match, and everyone just smiles and looks at each other and nods and says, great. No one knows anything more than when they came into the study. That question means nothing when it comes to the study of God's Word. The question that matters is, what does it mean? What did it mean? It's the same question as, what does it mean? And then we're free to think about how does it apply to our lives. But listen, evangelicals and Baptists are evangelicals are the world's worst at this. What it means to me. What it means to me. We don't realize it, but we have completely bought into part of the postmodern worldview. You say, I am not postmodern. If you've sat in a Bible study where people sat around and said, what does it mean to you? Well, to me it means this. Well, to me... You've sat in a postmodern Bible study. This is a book I read recently. It's by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Neither of them are believers, but they're talking about critical theory, and they're talking about postmodernism as a worldview and how it gets applied. And early in the book, they say this is the postmodern knowledge principle. It's radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable and it's a commitment to cultural constructivism. And what I want you to focus on is that word objective. The postmodern worldview says there is no objective truth. There is no objective knowledge. There is no outside of you truth that is unchanging and eternal. All truth is just 
subjective, meaning the subject determines what's true. You remember back to written communication. Who controls the meaning? Is it the author? Is it the text? Is it the reader? The postmodern worldview is it's always the reader. It's always the subject. They are the ones who get to determine what is true and what is right and what is lasting and what's not. You sat in a Bible study where people just talked about personal interpretations. That's a, that's a postmodern Bible study. That's a, a Bible study that's adopted critical theory into the way that they're approaching the Scriptures. So we don't want to approach the Bible that way. We don't want to be subjective in our approach to truth where we just say, well, it's up to you and me and the next person to decide. We want to be objective in our approach to the truth. There is something true in the text, and our job as interpreters is to figure it out. R.C. Sproul says this, what we're doing is seeking to understand what the Word says in its context before we go about the equally necessary task of applying it to ourselves. A particular statement may have numerous personal, possible personal applications, but it can only have one correct meaning. You just got to get that in your brain when you're studying the Bible. The text has one meaning. The passage has one meaning. We can talk about how it might apply in different situations to different people. We might come up with different thoughts on that level. But when it comes to meaning... The text has an objective meaning. And the subject, us, we don't get to determine that. The author gets to determine that. It's authorial intent. Now, just a few concluding thoughts, two simple thoughts that I think are both pretty practical. Number one, I think we should give careful consideration to the Bible translation we use. Okay. Now, before we talk about this chart, fill in your blank and then look at me. No one go home and throw your Bible away. Okay, I don't care what trans, well, maybe I do care some translations, but you look like reasonable people. Do not go home and throw your Bible away. Okay, what I'm about to tell you is not to say that Bible is worthless. Because I told you earlier, translation is really, really, really a tricky thing, especially when it comes to written communication. And so I've given you this spectrum. Okay, on this side, the word-for-word -word side, the left side, is what you might call formal equivalence. Okay, on the far other side, on the arrow, it's called thought-for-thought, -thought, and Bible translators sometimes call it dynamic equivalence. Okay, this is a spectrum of sort of theories of how you ought to interpret the Bible. And way over on this left side, you see there's an interlinear Bible. That means we're going to put the original text on the page and we're just going to translate right above or below one word at a time. And because syntax is not the same in Greek and Hebrew as it is in English, when you read those words, it's just going to be a jumbled mess of words and you're going to have to sort them out. It's really hard to read. But not too far from that is the NASB and you see the ESV. We read the ESV here on Sunday mornings, and then I've circled the, the HCSB on the graph. They've dropped the H, now it's just the CSB, okay? On this side, the left side, what the translators are trying to do is say, we want to get as close to the original text in our translation as possible. We want to make it as close to the original as possible. 
Now, there's a whole other school of thought on the right side of this chart, thought for thought, dynamic equivalence. And these people say, look, sometimes you can't just go word for word because there's some idioms in the Bible and there's some things that just don't translate well. And sometimes you kind of need to smooth it out and make it a little bit easier to make sense of. What good is it if you're word for word and nobody can understand any of it? Let's make it a little bit easier for people to read. And so way over on the far side, you have the message. Message really isn't even a translation. It's more of just a paraphrase. But it is rooted to Peterson's credit, it is rooted in the original languages, Living Bible, uh, New International Readers Version, NIRV, NLT. I like the NLT, and then I've circled the, the NIV. Here's why I've circled those two on the screens. If you want to pick a Bible and you just want to read long sections of the Bible and you want to get the big ideas of what the Bible's talking about, then something like the NIV or moving right, those are good options. For several years, I'm not doing it this year, but for several years, I've used the New Living Translation as my devotional Bible reading. Just, I'm reading large passages. I'm not studying, I'm not making notes, I'm just reading large passages. And it's really, really good for that. However, if what you want to do in your Bible reading and Bible study is really dig down into the text, and you really want to say, I need to get down to what the author really, really meant. My advice to you is that that green circle around the CSB, you stay there or over to the left. And this is what happens. People get in a Bible study. This, you, I know this has happened to you. You get in a Bible study and you start talking about something that's kind of hard to think through or sort through. And people start saying, well, my Bible says, well, my Bible says... Well, my Bible says, well, my Bible says, and sometimes as the facilitator, you're thinking, I don't care what your Bible says. You're reading out of the living Bible. I don't care. That's not a translation. That's somebody, like, it's okay to read it. I'm not telling you to trash it. I'm just telling you when you're really trying to drill down and think about words and phrases and grammar and syntax and arguments and what does the text say and you're looking for specific connections in the text, it's much better, much, much better to be over on this left side. Now, that left side of the graph is harder to read. It's a lot harder to read. I think a, an ESV Bible is about on a 10th or 11th grade reading level. That's hard for some people. So... When we give kindergartners a Bible, we don't give them a Bible on an 11th grade reading level. We give them the NIRV. Now, when my kids come home and we have family devotions and they pipe up and they say, well, my Bible says this, we say, okay. I don't tell them to rip their Bible apart or scratch that out with a Sharpie. But you just understand, okay, there's been a lot of interpretation baked into dynamic equivalence. They've done the interpreting for you rather than you being able to do the interpreting for yourself. So if your goal is to really dig down and say, my aim is authorial intent, you need to be over on the left side. It's why I preach out of the ESV, so that when we're in here, none of us are Greek and Hebrew scholars, myself included. But we're reading a text that is closer to the original writings, the original inspired scriptures, than something over on the right side of the chart. Okay, one last thought, and this is where we're going to end. I think we should just pray that God would help us to understand his word. And we should just acknowledge 
that he's the one who inspired it and we need his help to understand it. We want to understand what the Bible says, what it means. It's just worth saying, God, we're going to need your help in that. We need some guidance from your Holy Spirit. And we're prone to make mistakes and be confused and miss things or read things into the text that aren't there. And we just ought to be humble to ask for his help. And how we're going to end tonight is reading out of Psalm 119. We didn't read out of Psalm 119 at the front end. So we're going to read out out of Psalm 119 here at the back end. And these verses are going to be our prayer. And so Mark and Tony can come up. We're going to sing here in just a moment. Uh, We're just going to end our prayer is going to be reading straight out of Psalm 119. And so I'll let you follow along as I read these verses. And you join me as we pray these things from our hearts. Psalm 119.12, we pray, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We look at verse 18. We pray, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 26, we pray, when I told him my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. We look at verse 33, we say, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. You look at verse 64, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, teach me your statutes, we pray. Verse 73, Your hands have made and fashioned me. We pray, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. You look at 124 and 125. We pray, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. We look at verse 135 and pray, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Verse 144, we pray, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And we look at 171. We say, My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Amen.